0: Hello pod pals, welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. How is everyone doing? The past couple of weeks have felt as chaotic and unknowable as ever. I've now hunkered down at my parents' house. Uh, They recently moved to Kent, which is lovely. I'm super grateful to be with them, especially when everyone can be with their families this year. But I definitely feel very out of the loop all of a sudden. Usually, you know, this is the time of year when you, you gather and you celebrate and you make the effort to see lots of people. And right now I just feel like I'm on a, you know, a, a completely different time zone and wavelength to everyone else, which is a bit discombobulating. This is the penultimate episode of the series and um, that was quite, a you know, a key change. <laughs> Sorry about that. I was suddenly um, dour and now very excited. Um, but I am. I'm very excited to be releasing this one as it's been on the books for a while. There was a brief period when I thought I might be able to do it in person, but in keeping with the rest of the series, this was also recorded over Zoom. My guest is none other than Louisa Maycock, the creator, owner and mastermind of the hugely brilliant Girls on Tops. If you don't know them, I'm sure you'll have seen one of their t-shirts out and about, particularly if you frequent film festivals. Louisa prints and sells white t-shirts that feature the names of celebrated and trailblazing women in the film industry, including Tilda Swinton, Claire Denis, Lulu Wang, Greta Gerwig and Ava DuVernay, among many others. Uh, this year, they released editions with Miranda July and Sofia Coppola. Um, I myself own t-shirts emblazoned with Agnes Varda and Celine Sciamma, and I feel très chic when I wear them. They get stocked worldwide in London, Edinburgh, Amsterdam, Toronto, New York City, um, and have been worn by the likes of Rooney Mara, Timothy Chalamet, Laura Dern, Annie Clark, and many, many more. And not content to make us all just look very cool, Louisa has also set up an editorial platform called Read Me, which commissions female-led writing. And along with Ella Kemp, she edits and features really thoughtful and interrogative pieces on both contemporary and historical cinematic culture through an intersectionally feminist lens. And I think it's very much unlike the kinds of things you'll read elsewhere. I consider myself very lucky to have been published by them a few times, um, and I highly urge you to check out that platform. Louisa and I talk about the origin story for Girls on Tops, how the brand has grown over the past couple of years, and how Louisa stays on top of it all as a one-woman CEO and T-shirt folding machine. I'm so thrilled that we got this time to chat and I really was coming at it just from the perspective of a fan because I think it's just immensely impressive that in the space of a few years Louisa has created something that certainly in film going circles feels incredibly pervasive Um, and like I just you know I can't imagine a time when they didn't exist so I hope you enjoy this interview. This is episode 74 of Best Girl Grip. I like to begin the podcasts is kind of in the higher education realm and with a sense of where you went to university, if you did, um, and what you studied there. I did go to university. Um, my entire
1: family are in the arts, um, mostly sort of fine art, printmaking. Both my grandparents were painters. My sister's an illustrator, but I'm not very talented in that, that sort of vein. So I did um, English literature and creative writing at the University of Kent in Canterbury. And... Didn't have a very good time at all. It wasn't anything to do with the course or the place. Just university did not vibe. That you know the whole um, you go and you meet loads of amazing people and you go out loads. I'm I like to stay in. I like to be in bed by like ten at night. And I yeah, just didn't vibe with me at all. I sort of couldn't. I didn't settle in until probably third year, and then I I got my stride. And I sort of figured out how to write essays properly and started having fun with it. And so by the time 30 came round, I sort of felt like I'd been cheated out of an experience in a way. So I decided to go on and do a master's in this amazing course called The Contemporary, which was coupled with the ICA in London. And it was all about how different um, artistic disciplines intercepted um, to sort of inform about what it is living in the contemporary world so yeah that was just a year and I really loved it and yeah I feel like I had I had a small experience of university in that final year when everyone was still sort of 18 and I was there as a 25 because I had a couple of I had a couple of years out to work so I felt like the old soul tagging along (laughs)
0: And you just mentioned there that your family is from like an artistic kind of background and so I'm wondering if you had a sense of the kind of creative career that perhaps you wanted for yourself either to differentiate yourself from what they were already doing or you know what did you want to do after you graduated?
1: From quite early on there was always a joke in the family that if you work in the arts you're probably not going to make very much money and We'd always joke like, oh, why can't one of us be a lawyer or just something that would be a bit more, you know, reliable in terms of salary. But there was always just an idea of if you work hard and you do your best and you're happy, that's the most important thing. And sort of from when I was a child, I I loved to write. That was what I was sort of happiest doing. And that was my thing. So I thought sort of just, I thought I'd do something to do with, publishing or i don't know editing but beyond that i didn't really have a clue i mean my my family never instilled in me the idea that you had to know you know you, that you had to go from a to b to c it was always just you know just like be happy and don't do anything that you know just try not to be too stressed out by life which i think yeah <laughs> i appreciate now
0: Yeah, absolutely, and often only in hindsight do you kind of realise how valuable that like freedom and lack of pressure is. Definitely. And before we start moving into kind of girls on top's terrain and how that um, flourished, I'm wondering if you were working in the film industry before you conceived of that idea. Like, what were you doing around that time? I absolutely was not working in the film. I've never worked classically in
1: the film industry. At the time I was, when we came up with the idea for girls on tops. I was finishing that master, I, masters I just told you about, and it was, it was basically a reimagining of selfies and how selfies could be used as a sort of um, empowering way of crushing the male gaze. Which now it's an idea that's been done, but at the time I was at
0: the. <laughs> <what>? <laughs> it's very original, <laughs> yeah.
1: Because I, I really struggled to find secondary reading for it, so I was, I was sort of, I found myself going into. Thinking about how women are are looked at and how women do the looking, which I guess you can probably quite directly translate to what girls on tops does now or is interesting in anyway
0: and so let's talk about the origin story you know where were you where did the idea come from, and what were your kind of early ambitions for it? The early ambitions was definitely not
1: to turn it into a brand or a business or a company; it was literally just. I was in a room with a couple of other friends and all my friends have always been big film buffs. And so in our spare time and how we socialise, we'd go to the cinema. And my partner was working at at a cinema at university. And so luckily I got lots of free cinema tickets. (laughs) And we had been to see 20th Century Women, the film by Mike Mills, and so great cast of women so Greta Gerwig, um, Annette Benning. and in that film Greta Gerwig's character wears this sort of off-white um, t-shirt that's distressed and it's just got it's a Lou Reed band t-shirt and it's just Lou Reed in black um, text and we just sort of said it would be really cool to put to treat Greta Gerwig and Annette Benning in the same sort of way as a as a musician so it was Basically just a way to keep ourselves busy during a summer. So I just was finishing up my dissertation and then obviously thinking, what am I going to do? I couldn't get interviews anywhere. So I sort of just started doing Girls on Tops just as a way of keeping myself busy, really.
0: And when you say started doing, you know, what were the kind of machinations? What were the steps that you had to go through to sort of set that up? You know, how did you decide on the typeface? You know, how did you decide that they would just be white t-shirts? How did you set up the website? You know, what what was that process like? It was all very much learning as we went along. I mean,
1: I've never really sat down and had, you know, business meetings in the same. So I've never had a business plan, which I probably shouldn't say. But it was just, it was some kind of alchemy. It was tiny steps of, you know, thinking, oh, we'll have 30 printed just for ourselves. And we had them printed in the back of a record shop just by hand because we it was just money from our pockets. And we thought we just want to wear them and we want our friends probably would wear them. But in terms
0: of typeface, I can't give away trade secrets. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But, but no, it's just such a, I guess, a striking image. And I was, you know, simple is best, part of the original ethos. You know, what were you thinking around the kind of design or look of the T-shirts?
1: I mean, I think there's quite a rich history in, of T-shirts. You know, if you think of the um, Choose Love, the famous, um, I think her name, her name is Catherine Hamnett. I think it's just a, a white T-shirt is a classic garment that you will wear like they never go out of style, and I think I really like monochrome. I sort of most of my most of my clothes are black and white, and uh, I think yeah, it's just simple. It was one screen in terms of printing, so it wasn't multiple layers of color, which made things cheaper and quicker. But yeah, at each stage there wasn't a huge amount of theorising and you know planning. It was all just going with gut. It was a passion project really, just for pleasure. And I I didn't have a website until like embarrassingly recently in terms, I think maybe 2018, it was
0: all through Etsy to begin with. So thinking about the kind of commercial aspect of the now business, I'm wondering how you knew where to sell them. Because obviously now they're in physical venues as well as the website that you've got. How did that kind of process grow? How did you start getting them out to, you know, um, outlets all over the world, I think?
1: Well, it was a, I was in a very lucky position in that these places came to, girls on tops they came to me which is probably not a very (laughs) helpful thing to say but yeah social media was a huge tool in getting the word out there so bfi i'm pretty sure they i can't remember whether we sent an email or they sent an email but it was basically just finding whoever whoever's contact email and just saying you know this is we have a few t-shirts because it was also just at the time of. The Me Too movement. So there are a lot of different elements that just worked out in Girls on Tops' favor. But there are sort of iconic places in London. So BFI is huge. The Curzon's. I had some friends who worked there, so that was sort of an easy way in. Also, places where I want, I'd like to visit. I think, oh, maybe I can turn this into a business meeting that I've never actually done apart from... I think it's something that I was the most excited about was when I got an email from um, the IFC Centre in New York saying they would like to stock um, Girls on Tops. And that was the first sort of permanent international retail location. And yeah, they've been amazing. And I actually got to go and meet them and have a legit business trip, which hasn't happened since... But, um, like, actually being able to... I sent an email to my accountant being
0: like, is this okay? And he was like, oh, yeah, that's a very good idea. Well, that threw up lots of great segues. I guess the first, then, is that you've got an accountant, and I'm wondering, you know, is there anyone else that you go to for business advice that you can kind of be like, is this how I'm meant to be doing it? I'm wondering who you turn to for reassurance or advice. I
1: think I must annoy my the printers the most. The people who... The guys who actually make the T-shirts... Because they have heck of a lot of experience. So I turn to them in terms of logistics, getting t-shirts from one place to the next. So for internal shipping and stuff, customs, I'll turn to them. In terms of business advice, I sort of just feel my way through it and watch people who I admire. Not necessarily people I know, but um, obviously at the moment there are a lot of young women who run their own businesses so i sort of just try and channel that energy but also yeah it's quite scary being in charge of stuff
0: Absolutely. And have there been any like growing pains or, you know, just obstacles that you've overcome? And how have you overcome them? That's quite an interviewee question. (laughs) You know, when they're like, tell me about a challenge (laughs) and how you solved it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's, it's literally obstacles every day, whether that's something tiny, like finding out the best place to source packing materials or something bigger. Like the example I think of is it's been quite hard finding a an HQ for Girls on tops, so a sort of a, a space where it feels that it can... Because I do all the shipping in-house myself and I'm based in London, so everything is very expensive. So that was the sort of biggest hurdle I had to get over is finding somewhere that wasn't thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds each month where I could grow the business and um, feel legit because I'd often... Because it started in my parents' attic, basically, in my childhood bedroom. like with sloping roofs and I used my old twin bed to use as shelving to put all the t-shirts on that was the biggest yeah the biggest hurdle
0: and it also leads me on to kind of thinking about you know I guess imposter syndrome or having that moment where you Felt like it was a business as opposed to just this side hustle. I'm putting in air quotes because I feel like that's that term's been cancelled slightly, and you know, or just like a, a hobby or a pet project. And did moving into that physical space give you that sense of okay, I've really achieved something here? You know, when when did that moment arrive for you? Definitely, it was
1: really a sort of room of one type moment. Like when I got yeah, it, it was just feeling valid and legitimate. And I still, when I meet people. Not so much nowadays in person, but especially people who don't exist in the sphere that you and I are in. Trying to describe what I do for a living and what my job is is quite tricky. So I often will lie and say, I just, like, oh, I work in film marketing, because I sort of do. Um, and then sometimes I'll say I work in... I have my own small fashion company, which I sort of do as well. But imposter syndrome is something I deal with literally. There are some days where I feel like I'm on top of everything and like I really enjoy it and it's exciting and I feel like I have a purpose and there are some days where I feel completely at sea and I don't know the right etiquette for you know copying what person into which email and You know, simple stuff that I'm not in an office environment where I have people above me who I can learn from. So it's all just feeling my way through. And I wear my heart on my sleeve, which I'm quite sensitive. So, and that's something I think you're, you're sort of taught that there's no room for that in business. And I think that's something that I'd quite like to, you know, shoo out of the way. And I think that's what makes what I do feel good. You know, I don't have to put on a sort of entrepreneur type Dragon's
0: esque persona. I can just be me. And I'm wondering if that was particularly hard in retail, because I know, you know, people can be quite forthcoming if if something's late or, you know, they're just not happy with something. And, and particularly when you're doing it all by yourself, which isn't something... People probably don't realize particularly when it's a professional looking operation like girls on tops and they think there's all these people doing the packing behind the scenes. And was that a struggle to kind of, you know, to just not take everything so personally when something was late or something went wrong? Definitely. I take I mean I still pretty much
1: will will take everything not everything personally, but I it's never ever to me just, you know, the money or sales. I mean I'm I don't really Check analytics very often in the same way that probably lots of other people would. And it's all about, I want, I basically want to please people. And I think that's a key part in working in retail. (laughs) Because, yeah, basically, I'm the customer service person, I'm the operations manager, I'm the person who makes sure everything is stocked. And as long as someone is happy, I'm happy. And if someone is upset or cross, I have to really sort of take a deep breath and try and I mean it makes me a much better customer and I think that of that's the same as many other people who have worked in retail I'm always trying to sort of working out whether I should make it more obvious that it's just one person or whether I should maintain a distance and a sort of you know strong brand voice that's more neutral but I sort of just, I mean, there aren't more people working for me, so I can't really lie. It's, (laughs) it is just, it is just me in a a small windowless room surrounded by many t-shirts. But I, I think it makes people, I think it's endearing, but I, I mean, the, the goal would, I'd love to have more people working with me. I mean, that was the sort of the plan at the beginning of the year before the pandemic.
0: And then, you know, thinking about the more positive side of things, obviously, big celebrities, you know, the people that actually have their names on the T-shirts have been wearing them, like Tracy Letts wore Greta Gerwig's. I saw, you know, how Miranda July was, like, so psyched to have her name on the T-shirt when you launched that a couple of months back. Do you still get as excited as the first time that you saw someone wearing a T-shirt, you know, as you do now? Like, that must be such a thrill. It's probably the best part
1: of the job. Like, with Miranda July, personally, she's a... I'm a huge, huge fan of her and I have been since I was probably like 16 or something. I sort of thought Miranda July would wear her own name. Maybe she is secretly, but it's just not in photographic evidence. Cause I thought if anyone would, as a sort of piece of performance art, she would wear her, her own name, like mind blown type moment. To begin with at the very start, we literally just had a pad of paper and we just went round between us Saying, like, who some of our favorite filmmakers and you know, costume designers, producers, writers, actors, and just naively thought, yeah, we'll just print their names on t shirts when it's just you know, we're not going to ever sell them. But then, obviously, there was the demand there after we sold about we sold two, I think, at the first pop up we did, and we thought this isn't a thing that we're going to do anymore because it's quite demoralizing. to like sit sit at a stand and have people just look at you as though you're mad but then these two t-shirts were sold and popped up on twitter and then there was the demand for it so it's always just been answering the demand people want more t-shirts i'm gonna try and give them more t-shirts but now it's more of a curated i like to get permission from preferably the person themselves or their team yeah it's a lot of just emails and making contacts and asking luckily I have lots of film journalist friends asking them if they've got contacts that I can nab like sometimes there'll be people who will approach me not necessarily themselves but agents of people will say have you thought of adding them to your collection so now it's it, it's a very it, it's a very long process. I think that people think, oh, it's a white T-shirt with a black name on it. It's so easy. But there's probably... I mean, the Sophia Coppola T-shirt took a year and a half to make. Not necessarily because it was really tricky to get approval or anything. It was so easy and Sophia was amazing. But it was just, you know, you have to find the right time. And then it's usually if someone's coming out with a new film or with new new releases... Uh, Because there's the memento to get um, eyes on it. But that's part part of the job that I quite enjoy. Sort of the chase.
0: And you mentioned that, that, you know, Twitter was a big part of that initial momentum. And I mean, I have to say, I'm a big fan of your social media and you put out a newsletter, which it always just feels very genuine and organic. And I think, you know, just from that place of being a fan and and loving what you do, just I think that really comes across. And I'm wondering how much time you kind of devote to that side of things, you know, if there's a bit of a strategy to it, whether you say like, I'm going to spend an hour on Instagram or an hour on Twitter today, like, how does that work for you? i really should have a strategy and i should
1: i should put it in to my calendar i have this notebook that i have next to me that literally contains everything and then i can't understand my notes which is not helpful at all but it's what works and i'll just i'll have a to-do list and i'll say i I don't have a i must put out so many posts it's usually what feels natural i don't want to i don't like to post too much there isn't really a strategy it's if there's new releases, I'll think, oh, it would be nice to have put out a newsletter um, around that T-shirt. I mean, we have a newsletter that goes out. So we have two a month. Like, it doesn't come easy. It, like, doesn't come naturally to me. I don't think I'm a natural copywriter. That's a very fantastic skill to have. I don't know how copywriters do it. But, um, yeah, it's all just very just not businesslike at all. I just fly by the seat of my pants, I think.
0: But also what I love about Gus and tops is that there is the sense of like word of mouth and I think you've created something that people want to advocate on your behalf not only just because you know the product looks great and they like wearing it so they'll show themselves in it but people do love just to share it without you kind of instructing them to um, and it really does have a life of its own like I think I saw someone wearing it at like a Black Lives Matter protest or something like they're just out and about in the world um, and that must be a very nice feeling to kind of feel that there is an engine behind something that you you've created you kind of it has a life of its own now
1: oh definitely like when i think it was maybe a couple of years ago when i was out taking public transport which seems like a very distant memory and i was at the tube station where i live and someone was wearing a t-shirt getting off the escalators and i felt like shouting at them like stop (laughs) i made that t-shirt yeah do you do that (laughs) i would have to (laughs) i've done it i've done it once And I was just so excited. It was at um, the Curzon in Bloomsbury when we were selling t-shirts there and I could see someone um, buying some t-shirts and I was like, I I have to go up and talk to her. And we had a conversation. She said, oh, it's a Mia Hansen love t-shirt for my boyfriend. And that now turned out to be Savina who writes for us on, um, on our editorial site. So yeah, it is
0: nice. It's
1: definitely, yeah, it's been a way to meet people as well.
0: And you just mentioned there the editorial side of the platform, which is another kind of fantastic element. And I'm wondering, what stage did that idea come that you wanted to publish women led writing? And how did you go about doing that? Well, it was always as soon as the t shirts were making a small amount of profit, I thought, I, I have
1: to recycle it in some way. It can't just be about making money. And that's it that goes into, you know, my pocket or, you know, goes, it does go back into the business, but I thought I have to do something with this money that lifts other people up. And obviously I have a but my background is in writing, so I thought it would be so cool if I could um you know give a space to young female and non-binary writers because film journalism was definitely much more of a boys club than it is now. I think it's it's tipping slightly which is great. And um I thought it's it's a quite it's an it's an instant way of you know putting something from the t-shirts into something else that idea was conceived as soon as the t-shirts were you know selling at a a, a, a decent speed and um i mean the name of the platform i was sitting in a of a screening of Morvan color which is one of my favorite films by um Lim ramsey and there's a scene where Morvan is writing something on the computer and there's a close-up of the screen and it just says, read me. And I thought, oh, that would be such a good... That would be such a good... That's the platform. And it sort of went from there and quickly I realised I can't do this on my own. I need an editor to help me. Luckily, I found um, a fantastic film writer called Ella Kemp and she's she came on as my contributing editor quite early on and she's really been essential in building... The platform to what it is today and i i probably I definitely couldn't do it without her support and her very fast effective
0: <laughs> editing skills well it's yeah was just such a i think varied and in depth i just i love everything that you put out so um it's incredibly impressive and i know that funding women-led projects is something that you've kind of begun to explore and i'm wondering if you could talk about how you see the brand evolving and and what your maybe desires are moving forward
1: I mean, the ultimate goal would be to come on and produce a film from like start to finish and it, <laughs> it to be a Girls on Tops produced film. But I mean, I have no idea how I'd go about doing that. At the moment, you know, the amount of money that I could offer is not quite substantial enough to be a, a huge, huge help to sort of larger projects. So uh, I think it's definitely more of a, a long game and I just basically need more hands and I need another brain and I need 24 extra hours in a day. But I would love to get to a point where maybe there's someone else helping me with the operational sides of the business and I can focus more on approaching young filmmakers and saying, you know, how can I help, you know, just like put me to work and let me help. But at the, at the moment, I'm more focused on the read me side of things.
0: And that kind of just occurred to me that obviously, now that it's graduated into a different venue, maybe this is easier, but particularly when it was something that was in your room, how do you kind of prioritise your time and sign off? Because it appears to me like something that you could feasibly be doing for, you know, 24 hours of a day. So how how have you learnt to set boundaries for yourself?
1: Unluckily, I moved into a new office, literally the weekend before the first lockdown. (laughs) the move was like oh i'm going to move into a different space where there are other kinds of businesses and there could be more of a cuz when you work alone it is quite lonely and i thought oh if i'm around other s- similar businesses we can sort of it might be like i have colleagues and we can have we can talk about stuff and then so i i committed to that space and then literally a week later lockdown i sort of i'm i'm quite strict In terms of my time, I will work from around nine until six. Sometimes that's not—it's not, you know, solid. The beauty of being your own boss is you can, you know, take an hour out in the day and do something else if you want to. If you then make it up elsewhere, but um, I knew early on that I wouldn't let it be something that I do in the evenings and at weekends. Sometimes I do—I have to, but yeah. If someone sends me an email after about half six. I'll, I'll check it. I'll check, I'll check everything before I go to bed, but I'm not someone who will reply, you know, straight away if I
0: don't absolutely have to. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, we touched on the pandemic there, and I'm wondering, because it's been a particularly, obviously, tough year for small businesses, and I'm wondering how that's been for you, whether it's kind of taught you resilience or, or changed the way you approach things at all? I think it's changed. It's basically just made me realise that
1: I can be slower I think everyone has been forced to slow down. And, and, you know, before this, we were just like, I felt I always had to be going into Central and doing stuff and, like, seeing people. And, you know, I wasn't working unless I was, like, on my laptop in a public space. Whereas now it's... I mean, it's been incredibly difficult to begin with. I think everyone was just in, like, panic mode and survival mode. And luckily there was some governmental help in grants which I just about got which was the small business rates relief which was fantastic because it meant my rent for the office was paid um, without having to struggle which was such a weight off my mind otherwise I think I think it would have been very very difficult and I understand like how many people will have had to just walk away from their small businesses because they're just not viable in this in this environment but I mean I've sort of the day-to-day of it has suited me quite well because it's meant I don't have to go into my studio every day I will try and condense it to when I just have to go and pack orders so I'll have a sort of two very intense days where I'm just from like nine till four p.m when the postman comes (laughs) and I'll put on something on Netflix or a podcast and I'll just get into a zone and I can pack like 80 orders a day when it's when it's really busy, um, I can do that, and yeah, I think it's just taught me that the most valuable aspect is being able to be malleable and to adapt and change. And you know, I was in a a very good position that a lot of the sales were going online already, so it's not like I was in all physical shops. The fact that all the retail locations that we have have been closed, I think I won't see the effects of that until next year. I'm quite a big advocate of just cross a bridge when you come to it.
0: And post has been, I think, such... Ha- it's, like, it's had a bit of a resurgence. I just feel like I've um, regained a joy of just sending people like postcards. And I'm wondering if there is a moment in this journey, in your career, that you're proudest of. The thing that stands
1: out most
0: is, so around
1: when Greta Gerwig's Ladybird came out, that was also around the time of Time's Up and a sort of reckoning with... The environment of the landscape of the film industry being you know completely sexist, very misogynistic, sort of abuse at the very core, so Greta had a cover shoot for Stylist magazine, and this was when I was still running the business from my old bedroom at my mum and dad's house, and I got an email from the the editor of Stylist saying. We've got Greta coming in for a cover shoot. We'd love, we'd love to put her in some of your T-shirts. I was like, oh my God. Okay, how does this work? They said they needed them the next day and I just so happened to be going up to London the next day. So I grabbed as many T-shirts as I could and put them into a suitcase. And they, they wanted me to hand deliver them. To, and I think it was at Claridge's. And I'd never been to Claridge's before so I was there with like my wheelie suitcase of t-shirts <laughs> and I was like maybe they'll let me stay and watch which of course they didn't so I just went up to because it was the junket day as well so it was quite busy but they sent me to this empty room and I think she just finished doing some interviews and then she was going to come in and do the photo shoot so I sat and I was like what do I do so I had this suitcase of t-shirts and I dropped them off and I spoke to the editor and. I said do you think I can stay and she said no (laughs) and she said my assistant will have the t-shirt sent back to you I can't guarantee that she'll you know she will want to wear them because we have lots of different outfits pulled so I thought okay that's fine I left and um, then at the same time my grandmother got quite ill and so she was in hospital and it was towards the end of her life so I was spending a lot of time at her bedside and she was unconscious so it was quite an intense time and um, I remember sitting at her bedside a couple of days before she died and I got the email from the stylist editor saying, great news, we got Greta into one of your t-shirts and seeing the the actual physical magazine that was like sitting at the bedside with my grandmother. And she'd always, her dream was to have one of her grandchildren own their own business. So um, it's quite sentimental, but that was, yeah, that was a very proud moment.
0: But also just such a beautiful encompassing of like the highs and I guess the lows of life. You know, you can just be having this like big professional moment while having um, a very sad personal moment. And how those two things coalesce, but don't detract, hopefully, from one another. Um, that's that, that must have been yeah, very, very exciting and very meaningful. Thank you for sharing that. And then I'm wondering if, you know, you've had a biggest learning curve of your career, you know, perhaps something that you'd wished um, starting out on the journey that you'd knew or that you would tell younger Louisa now. Oh gosh, I have learning curves literally every day. I think I would tell younger me
1: just maybe get better at planning ahead slightly, but also not because, I mean, I wouldn't want to change any any part of how this has gone because I'm having to remind myself to step back and um own the success I think that's something that people struggle with and it's always oh yes but so and so did this and actually that was what made the thing that I did good whereas I'm trying to get better at you know I do I I run a I run a business and it's a successful business and people like it
0: and we can definitely like get into that what's next mentality where as soon as you have like one success you kind of you want to immediately release the next cool thing or have the next amazing announcement as opposed to just sitting back and like luxuriating or feeling content with what you've actually just put out there.
1: Yes, I think it's about, yeah, sitting with your, your successes, however tiny or huge. Like if it's just someone has sent an email saying, thank you for sending this so fast, like the person I've given it to really loves it. I mean, that feels just as good as like a, a bigger, a famous person wearing a t-shirt.
0: And then finally, is there a film by a woman director that you consider to be a bit of a hidden gem that you'd like to spotlight today?
1: Coincidentally, I watched one yesterday, last night, that I think it's only just come onto Netflix and maybe it was from last year. It's called um, Yes, God, Yes. And it's on Netflix. And it's by Karen Maine, who um, she wrote it and she directed it. And she wrote Obvious Child with Jenny Slate. Yeah. And it's, it's got um, Natalia Dyer from Stranger Things as the lead, and it's set in 2000, so it's got that good feeling of nostalgia. And it's about a um, a teenage a teenage girl coming of age, and she's in a very strict Catholic school, and it's all about coming sort of reckoning with the first glimmers of sexuality and what that means as being part of the catholic church and it's very nicely observed and uh, very funny and under 90 minutes which was when i when i have to be in bed by 10 o'clock i mean I, I, I appreciate and yeah i would say if you're needing something on netflix that is just
0: yeah a joyous watch
1: it sounds like a bit of a hybrid
0: between like ladybird and maybe like miseducation of cameron post or something i don't know
1: definitely no definitely yeah because the premise is she goes away to this this sort of weekend retreat yeah so it's definitely got yes got flavors of both of those films
0: amazing well thank you for picking that and thank you for sharing it and Lou thank you so so much for coming on the podcast it's been a real delight to have you here today
1: thank you so much for having me thank you
0: Thank you for downloading this episode of Best Girl Grip. You can find all my previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. If you want to give me an early Christmas present, please leave a review on Apple, spread the word on social or let me know what you think at Stone Cold Fox on Twitter. I always like to hear from listeners and pals of the pod. In the meantime, have a lovely weekend, staying safe, warm and hopefully watching lots of films.